Father, we're so conscious of the untold temporal blessings of not having AIDS or living in Northern Ireland instead of a place where there isn't as much medical help. And so I pray that as we talk about suffering again, there would be a deep sense of awareness that we're not theorizing here. These are huge issues. We will all taste them sooner or later. All of us are going to die. Dying will not be easy for most of us. It will be a process. There will be moments where it will be very, very scary as our faith is challenged and there will be pain on the way and and on the way there we'll lose some precious people. This is the real world and I pray that you would help me now deal faithfully with what the Bible teaches about these things and that you would exalt your grace. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So my, my plan was to start with the big picture last night about why there is such a world as this with so much terrorism and so much pain and misery. So the suffering of the world last night and then tonight, focus on the sufferings of Christ. And then tomorrow night, focus on the sufferings of Paul and missionaries and ministers. And, and then on the last time that I have with you, to focus on your suffering and specifically the, the kind of sustaining grace that God gives you for your life. That's the plan for my evening session. So... Tonight, I said this was the fourth answer to the question posed last night, so we can just launch in with you assuming that. And my aim is to magnify the greatness of Christ's sufferings. I want to magnify Jesus in his sufferings. And the process that I would like to venture here is that the ultimate biblical explanation is what I'll outline here in general terms, and then we'll go to the Bible to, to find it. My aim, very practically, is that God would free us from paralyzing, the paralyzing effects of discouragement or self-pity or fear or pride and that we would be free to spend ourselves, give ourselves in Nigeria or wherever in order to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, including suffering, for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ. So the first five minutes now is going to sound very theoretical, philosophical, theological, without root in the Bible, but hang on, don't leave me. This is the conclusion I'm giving you, and then we're going to go underneath it and put a lot of Bible there before we're done. I believe that the universe exists, and that includes you and your family and your sufferings. The, the universe exists to display the greatness of the glory of the grace of God. The universe exists. God resolved to create the world to display the greatness of the glory of the grace of God. 
Now, I might have said it slightly differently. I might have said the universe exists, you exist, the world exists as it is to display the greatness of the glory of God. That would have been a true statement, but the Bible is more specific. It does bring in the word grace, and we'll look at that text in a moment. So what I'm saying is that all this world that I talked about last night in all of its pain exists for this purpose. God decreed from all eternity to display the greatness of the glory of his grace for the enjoyment of his creatures. And he revealed that most fully in the sufferings of his son, Jesus Christ. That's my thesis tonight. So the sufferings of Jesus are the aim, the goal towards which God is moving in the creation of this world in the display of the glory of his grace. Christ, who least deserved to suffer. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who least deserved to suffer, bore most suffering in order that we who deserve most suffering may escape our suffering. That's what happened at Calvary, and I believe that was the pinnacle of the revelation of the greatness of the glory of the grace of God, and therefore all of creation is leading to that. And the reason there is a world of suffering is so that Christ could suffer and display the grace of God in his suffering. That's the conclusion. That's where we're going in tonight's message. The ultimate reason that suffering exists in the universe is so that Christ might display the greatness of the glory of the grace of God in suffering to overcome our suffering. None of that could have happened had there not been suffering in the world. Good Friday is the point of the universe because it was the pinnacle of the display of the greatness of the glory of grace and that's why he created the universe. Everything is leading to it. Everything is explained by it. What happened on Good Friday was the pinnacle of the revelation of the display of the greatness of the glory of God's grace. Now we need Bible. We need Bible underneath these kinds of statements. So let's begin. You don't need to look all of these up. You can go there with me if you want, but I'll be moving over numerous texts. I'm going to start with Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. Goes like this All who dwell on earth will worship the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. That's Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. It's a very careful, literal, accurate translation. Everybody, at some point in the future, when this Antichrist figure appears, is going to worship him, except those whose names are in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. 
And that book, it says, was written before the foundation of the world. So, before you were created or anybody was created, before creation happened, there's a book. It's called the Book of Life. And in it are names, names of people who will not worship the beast. That is, God will exercise his preserving grace for them and prevent them from falling prey to that idolatry. And that book, amazingly, is called the book of life of the lamb who was slain. Which means that before there was any creation, in God's mind, a lamb was to be slain. And that slaying of that lamb would procure for those in the book perseverance so that none of them would worship the beast. And, and the only point I want to make here is the slaying of the Lamb of God was in the mind of God before he made the universe. Now, I want to read again a text I read last night, 2 Timothy 1.9. Paul looks back now into eternity in 2 Timothy 1.9, before the ages began, and he says this, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So now the point is the same here. Before the ages began, before there was any creation, in Christ Jesus, the one who purchased grace for us, we received grace in him before we were made. So now you have Revelation 13, 8. There's a book where names are written because a lamb in God's mind is going to be slain and secure the salvation of those in the book. And then in 2 Timothy 1, 9, you have God saying there is grace in Christ Jesus for people and grace is undeserved favor we have sinned. So God has in his mind, there's going to be sin, there's going to be a slaying of a lamb, and there's going to be salvation and preservation, and it's all planned before Adam and Eve ever are created or ever fall. Now that's crucial because it means that this slaughtered lamb is not plan B. God did not wait until they fell and say, oh my, my, my creation has been ruined. What can I do? New plan. I'll save them by sending my son. That's absolutely not what the Bible teaches. We have at least two verses now, and there are others who make plain that in God's mind, before Adam and Eve fell, you have a, a book of the Lamb slain in which names are written, and you have grace coming to us before 
Adam and Eve ever fell. Now, I believe that all of that happened because God aimed to display grace. And let me go to the verse that's key there. This is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. It goes like this. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace. Now, the key thing to see at this point is there are two phrases in those verses. He chose us in him and secondly, he adopted us through Jesus Christ. That means that the work that God planned to do before the foundation of the world unto the praise of the glory of his grace was a work produced or procured or obtained by Jesus Christ. And he did it by being slaughtered on the cross. You know that word slain in John 13, 8, is not a nice word. Only John in all the Bible, I mean in all the New Testament writers, uses that word svago in Greek. It's what you do to a lamb. You slit its throat. You pour the blood out. You kill it. You slaughter it. That's the word used before the foundation of the world. There is a book of the slaughtered Lamb. Why? Why would you choose such, such a name, such a word? Can't we just, can't we say, take his life or something gentle? No, we can't because it was, if you saw Mel Gibson's movie and got a little small foretaste, it was not pretty and it was not to be made light of. It was not to be put on little gold and silver crosses to be worn around pagan people's necks as some kind of jewelry for rock stars. That's not the way it was. Nobody hangs electric chairs around their neck. An electric chair is really gentle. But crosses are designed for torture. And that was God's design for his son. Unto the praise of the glory of his grace. That's verse 6 of Ephesians chapter 1. And from my mind... In 1977, when I taught through Ephesians, it was an absolutely glorious discovery in verse 6, verse 12, and verse 14 of Ephesians 1 that the whole purpose from before the foundation of the world of everything that happens in redemption is so that you and I might praise the glory of the grace of God. It was so transforming for me in 1977, as I taught Ephesians at Bethel College. Now, another verse, just to show you that it wasn't just from eternity past that this was heavy on God's mind and heart, but to eternity future, the slain lamb will be the focus of our worship. Sometimes people ask, 
will we be able to forget the pains of this life? Not this one. Revelation 5, verses 9 through 12 go like this. They sang a new song. This is a picture of what's happening in heaven. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. You were slaughtered. That's what they're singing. That's the language of heaven. You were slaughtered. And by your blood running out of your feet and your hands and your head and your side, you, by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Verse 11, then I looked and I heard around the throne myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive glory and power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and blessing. That's chapter 5. And over in chapter 15, they're still singing this song to the slaughtered Lamb. Is it not amazing that forever and ever and ever and ever we will sing about slaughter. I'm blown away by that. I am simply blown away by the fact that the hymns of heaven will be about slaughter. Now, either God had a bad idea about how we should spend eternity with infinite happiness or the world needed suffering so that Christ could be slaughtered. It was planned before the foundation of the world that he be slaughtered. We're going to sing forever and ever that he was slaughtered. Therefore, the conditions for the slaughter needed to be provided. Which, of course, leads us to what we saw last night. Namely, that God ordained the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. Now, for this to work without blasphemy in your mouth or mind to say that the goal of the universe is Good Friday and we'll be singing of Good Friday forever and therefore the conditions needed to put Good Friday in place had to happen and therefore God ordained everything that leads to Good Friday. For you to be able to say that and not blaspheme, you have to have a category of thought in your mind that goes like this. It is not evil in God to will that there be evil. Let me say it again. It is not sin in God to will that there be sin in the world. If you cannot fit that into your head, I don't think you can embrace the big pictures of the Bible. 
we must let the Bible shape what's possible in our thinking. If you say, that's, that's nonsense, that's schizophrenia, that's double talk, I just don't think you can make sense out of the Bible. I don't bring to the Bible, oh, I hope I don't bring to the Bible, philosophical presuppositions about what God can and can't do. I want to expose myself to the Bible, let every verse have its proper say, and then speak somehow the wholeness of it, even if it blows people's categories. And this one usually does. God is not evil to will that there be evil that he hates. It is part of his holiness that he wills that there be unholiness, which he then hates. And therefore, I said, trying not to steal any thunder from the morning messages, and R.T. told me, you cannot steal my thunder, say what you need to say, so I'll take one minute to say it again. When... Genesis 50, verse 20, inspired by God, finds coming out of the mouth of Joseph the kind of blessing that he gives to his brothers. You meant it for evil. That is, you hated me. You threw me into a pit. You lied about me and my dad and made him miserable for these years. You sold me into slavery and said good riddance. You meant so much evil against me. God meant that for good. And I I say meant with emphasis on it because in in the verse, the verbs are parallel. The verse does not say, you meant it for evil, God used it for good. That's not what the verse says. The verse says, You meant it for evil, God meant it, meant it, meant it. He had a different design than you had, which means that over the fall and every evil in your life, there are two designs, Satan's design and God's design. Satan is always designing your ruin and your unbelief and your hatred of God. And if you come into a time of suffering and you start to get mad at God, you are perfectly agreeing with Satan's design in that suffering. But if you come into suffering and instead of embracing Satan's design, you say, oh God, Satan is meaning this for my destruction and maybe some humans are meaning it for my destruction, but I know you're not meaning it for my destruction. You're meaning it for my good and the people's good are going to watch me rest in you in this then it will have achieved God's beautiful, beautiful purpose. Romans 8, 20 to 23, I read last night. Perhaps we don't need to read it again, although I think I will just quickly. Because God, when he saw the fall that he ordained, then he ordained that there would be a physical catastrophe in the world so that natural calamities would display at the natural level the outrage of the moral level of unbelief. That's what I unpacked last night. Let me read these verses again, Romans 8.20. The creation was subjected to futility, 
Now that's God decreeing that this beautiful, perfect universe that he made collapse into ruin. The creation was subjected to futility, not, willing, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in, in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait, groaning eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I'll tell you, there is not much more important passage in the Bible for my pastoral ministry to suffering people than that. Because Paul seems to want to stress in verse 23, even we, even we who have the Holy Spirit groan waiting for the redemption of our bodies. Have you ever watched anybody die? I've watched so many saints, golden saints, die. Old Ruth Fast, greatest prayer warrior at Bethlehem for years, couldn't die. Her, her tongue turned black as a cinder almost, crying out, Oh God, oh God, why can't I die? Please let me die. And then had hallucinations of lewd dancers around her hospital dead. I mean, Satan beat up on Ruth fast like I've never seen a saint be beat up on. So if that verse isn't precious for that, I don't know what is. Even we, Ruth Fast, who have the fullness of the Holy Spirit in us that overflow day after day at Bethlehem in prayer for me and others has to groan waiting for the adoption, the redemption of her body, then what can you say? I love Paul's realism. I really love the Bible's realism about suffering. God sentenced the world to suffering. Now, there are some amazing verses about his design in that. Listen to this one. Ezekiel 33, 11. As I live, declares the Lord God, I do not have pleasure in the death of the wicked. And you just, you're, you're just rocked back on your heels and saying, God, if you don't have pleasure in the death of the wicked, then why do you let them die? I mean, you're God. Here is a partial answer to that question from Lamentations chapter 3. Amazing verse. Though he cause grief, this is Lamentations 3.32. Though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. Now that troubled me so much when I read it, trying to put that together with everything I've said so far, because I don't want to deny any verse because I've got another verse in my back pocket. I looked up in the Hebrew what willingly means. It says, 
he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. Well, the context is the the rape of Jerusalem, which God ordained. He sent Babylon against Jerusalem, and they were eating their children. And he knew it would happen. And here he says, I didn't do it willingly. (laughs) Well, who's twisting your arm? Your God. The word is mlevo. It's a combination of three little Hebrew words. M, from, lave, heart, o, his. From his heart. Let me read it with that literal translation. He does not from his heart afflict or grieve the children of men. Which means that I'm driven now to adjust my conception of God and say, all right, God has levels of enthusiasm or levels of willing about what he does. And some things he does, though he does not do them from his heart. He does them for wise and holy purposes that may grieve his heart temporarily, as it were, in order that something grand and glorious and God-exalting and loving would come to pass. So now, with the fall into sin and the fall into futility, the stage is set for the arrival of Good Friday. All I've been doing is trying to show you that the point of the universe is that the greatness of the glory of the grace of God most fully manifest in Jesus Christ's sufferings had to be prepared for, and it was prepared for by the fall of man into sin, the fall of the universe into futility, and now in a world where, where there are crosses and torture, now my son can come. The cross is ready. Romans are ready. Jews are ready. Gentiles are ready. Pilate is ready. Herod is ready. Wickedness is ready to devour my son. Now is the time to send him. No doubt that's the way Jesus thought over and over again. I must go up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man must go up to Jerusalem, be spit upon, be struck, be dishonored, be killed. And on the third day, he'll rise again. This is why I have come. I came to be slaughtered. Now, what's going to make us sing about this is that every blessing that you enjoy and will enjoy forever was bought by that suffering. And I'm just going to close by reading the list. There's seven of them. They're very short. These are the things that Jesus in his suffering accomplished for you. And these are the things about which songs will be written and sung forever and ever and ever. And none of it, none of it could be sung without the suffering of Jesus. And Jesus could not have suffered without a world like this. This world is radically Christ-exalting even when it doesn't know it. So here they are. Number one, Christ absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf, and he did it by suffering. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse 
for us, as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So the wrath of God was absorbed in Jesus, as it were, and taken off of you. There is therefore now no condemnation and no wrath on the children of God in Christ Jesus. And he did it by suffering and therefore will sing of the grace of God in his suffering forever. Number two, Christ bore our sins and purchased our forgiveness when he died on the cross in his suffering. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Or Isaiah 53.5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. So the weight of guilt and the weight of sin is off you. It's off you because he bore it. He didn't just bear the wrath of God. He bore all our guilt and all our sins in himself. And he did it by suffering and will sing to the praise of the greatness of the glory of the grace of God in that pinnacle demonstration forever and ever. Number three, Christ provided a perfect righteousness for us that becomes ours in him, and he did it by suffering. Philippians 2, 7, and 8. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, and that obedience Unto death on the cross is the obedience, which in Romans 5.19 is made over to you in justification. Many are counted righteous. Many are counted obedient because of his obedience. And it had to be an obedience unto death, even death on a cross. So your imputed righteousness is owing to the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Number four. He defeated death, and he did it by suffering. Hebrews 2.14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same nature, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who had been held in bondage all their life long by the fear of death. Death has been destroyed precisely through the sufferings of Jesus and therefore you can walk out of here in a few minutes totally unafraid of death as you leave and you'll trace it all back forever and ever to the sufferings of Jesus Christ and you will praise the greatness of the glory of the grace of God for it. Number five, he disarmed Satan. And he did it by suffering. I love this one. It's so pastorally relevant. Colossians 2.14. The record of debts he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame. So on the cross, two things happened in that verse. One is... He nailed the record of debts. Do you know that you have built up a very long record of debts against you in heaven? And do you know what happened to that record of debts on the cross? It got nailed there so that it doesn't get nailed on you. And then he says, in doing that, he disarmed Satan. What does that mean? 
Satan beats up on you big time. He can even kill you, according to Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. But you know what he can't do? He cannot damn you. Because the only weapon with which Satan could damn you is the weapon of unforgiven sin. And God took it out of his hand. He has no weapon. He's in the courtroom with no brief. He has no folder. He can't put anything on the table to say, that's what they've done, that's what they've done. You must damn them because they did this and this and this because God took it out of his hand, nailed it to the cross of Jesus, and Satan is now like a fangless dog gumming you. And he can gum you pretty bad, but he can't damn you. So when people come to me and they're terrified at Satan and they're seeing green things on their ceiling and their house is shaking at night, I don't say, oh, you're having hallucinations. I've seen Satan do some pretty awful things in this world. And if you grow up in Nigeria or someplace where there's voodoo or, or hope, you know, the kind of witch doctor things, you don't, you don't play fast and loose. I simply say to people, those green things can't damn you. Laugh at them. Laugh at them. Say, you can't have me. The only thing that can take me to hell is unforgiven sin. And all my sin is nailed to the cross because my King Jesus suffered for me. So have at me, Satan. Make me as miserable as you can. I'm going home. Make my day. I think that's the way we ought to talk to the devil. Number, number six, and, and I'm almost done. Christ purchased perfect, final healing. Oh, all you disabled people, all of us who have some disease, and we're going to die, and that's everybody. You're going to be well someday. I just love what that woman said on that video about what you do as a Christian with AIDS people. She said, of course we use the drugs. Of course we ameliorate suffering. Of course we do everything we can to lift the burdens of guilt and the stress in marriage. But mainly, we have something nobody else has. If they're going to die in six months, we have the best news in all the world. You can go to Jesus forever and be totally healthy, healthier than you've ever been. And of course, the verse is Isaiah 53, 4. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, with his bloody slaughter stripes, we are healed. The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's what the lamb slain will do and we will praise it to the glory of God's grace forever. Finally, number seven, Christ will bring us to God, which is the goal of the gospel. Christ will bring us to God and he will do it by suffering. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered once for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God. So, my point is, the point of the universe is that the greatness of the glory of the grace of God be praised Forever and ever. That's why the universe was made. Second point, that 
aim came to its supreme climax on Good Friday as the infinitely undeserving, that is, undeserving of suffering, the one who is so holy he deserved no suffering at all, bore all of my suffering who totally deserved it. And in that substitutionary suffering displayed the grace of God more fully than it ever was, ever was again, ever could be displayed. And therefore, point number three, we're going to be praising this forever and ever and ever. This is why we were made to see and savor and sing about the display of the grace of God in the sufferings of Jesus forever and ever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love your son. We love your plan. We tremble at the parts we don't understand. We don't want to put you in a box. We don't want to put you in a pocket. We know mysteries abound, and there are things about you we will never fathom because we're creatures, but oh, what you have revealed to us. And how we should worship now and how we will worship later when the cross forever and ever, the slaughter point of the Son of God forever and ever is made the focus of our joy. I thank you, Father, for revealing these things to us, doing these things for us, and I plead with you now for all of us who are here tonight that we would humble ourselves under your mighty hand and receive the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Receive deliverance from wrath. Receive deliverance from sin. Receive deliverance from guilt. Receive deliverance from the devil. Receive deliverance from hell. Receive healing. Partly now, all later. Oh Lord God, be pleased, I pray, to come. And don't leave anybody without a great blessing of your grace, I pray in Jesus' name.